Hi, I'm Kate Noel, and I am so happy you're here. This podcast is about all things related to honest health and wellness, eating disorder recovery, lifestyle stuff, and more. I want to share my personal experience along with interviewing amazing guests to inspire you to be the best version of yourself by truly honoring what your mind, body, and soul want and need. I've honestly always had a hard time allowing myself the dessert. If you have to, let's get real and take the cake. Take the Cake is about informing, inspiring, and educating you. It's not intended to diagnose or treat anything. It's simply for your entertainment, and I just want to give a trigger warning to anyone who is easily triggered by topics centered around disordered eating and stuff like that. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Take the Cake podcast. Today we have a dear friend of mine, her name is Jay Reesh. She is spectacular, she has an amazing story. I don't even know where to start with her because she's so great. So she is a registered nurse, but she is also a chronic illness survivor and she and I talk about endometriosis, we talk about SIBO, we talk about open heart surgery, which she had recently, and we talk about advocating for yourself. We talk about um, normalizing chronic illness and just breaking the stigmas. Um, And I'm just really honored that she was on the show. I I know for a fact that you are going to learn something new, get some really insightful new ideas from this episode and from our convo. So I'm just really excited and I'm excited to expand Take the Cake a little bit. You know, we talk about body image and eating disorder recovery on this show and I'm just really excited to expand it today and just moving forward and we talk about things uh, that I think are really relevant to just going through recovery Um, and yeah. So without further ado, here is Jay Reesh. Enjoy the show, guys. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am really excited to learn more about you and to share your wisdom and your experience with uh, Take the Cake audience. So I wanted to first start off by asking you about your background, how you got to the place that you are. Um, Yeah, take it away. Yeah. uh, First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to chat with you. Um, so my background, I guess I hate jumping right into my professional background, but it has so much to do with the, like how I got here as well. So, um, I've been a registered nurse for about 12 years now going on 12 and a half ish. Um, I had a very, I would say healthy life up until I turned 27 and it was like, almost like this light switch went off between being like very healthy. Um, I've been a competitive runner my entire life, like a D1 athlete, ate really healthy, had a great work-life balance. And then when I turned 27, I started having these weird symptoms of pain, um, this phantom pain that would kind of come and go. And I noticed after about like four or five months of it happening, I noticed that it was lining up with my period. It would come about four days before my period would start. And then it'd go away about like six days after. And, you know, at first I just kind of kept an eye on it and was just like, this is weird. But, you know, being young, I don't know when things happen in your body, you just assume it'll stop. And that's what I assumed. But after six months of that happening, 
over and over. I finally decided to to investigate it a little bit, went and saw a gynecologist and she kind of not blew it off, but couldn't correlate the where I was having pain with my period. So again, I just kind of was like, okay, well, I want to see a doctor. And she said I was fine. So I just kept an eye on it for a little while longer. And then about six more months of this phantom cyclical pain. Um, and then other weird things started happening. Um, so it wasn't just pain anymore with my period. It was um, nausea. It was no appetite. It was crazy constipation. It was um, brain fog and shortness of breath and just this constellation of symptoms that I finally was like, okay, this isn't nothing. And this started this journey of trying to figure out what was wrong with me that took me in total four years. Mm. So that's kind of the catalyst of where um, my background kind of plays into where I am today. I felt like knowing so much I know about medicine and the fact that it took me four years to mm. ultimately end up getting a diagnosis of endometriosis. I thought that was insane mm-hmm. uh, that it took that long and that I, I knew how to navigate the system and I knew what questions to ask and it still took me that long. And so I figured if it's taking me this long, how much is it, how long is it taking other women that deal with this? Yeah. So you, you are a registered nurse and you weren't trained and you didn't know what endometriosis was. Never learned the word, um, never heard about it. And I like prided myself in nursing school of, of having one of those memories where like, I may not remember everything about everything, but if, if I hear something once I can recall, you know, yeah. that I can recognize the word or associate something with it. And when the first doctor and this was two years into my journey, asked me if I'd ever heard of endometriosis. I was just kind of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that was wild to me because now I know it's so common. I mean, one in 10 women have it. And for most of them, it takes them about 10 years to get diagnosed. So I was, oh my gosh, it's a a tragedy. Honestly, I'm considered one of the lucky ones. So Mm. in everything I went through, I felt like I just needed, I needed to do something about that. And um, sharing my story has kind of been the platform in, in which I've done that. And it ultimately ended up starting a nonprofit organization called the Endometriosis Coalition to basically help women get diagnosed faster and get better care sooner. Okay. So that's amazing. I love that. And can you just briefly talk about what endometriosis is just in case, I mean, maybe a lot of people don't know what it is. I actually have heard of it. But I guess I don't really know what it is when I think about it. So if you could just give a brief idea of what it is. Yeah, of course. I think within the last, I would say, three years or so, it's become a more mainstream topic to discuss. I know a lot of celebrities have come out and talked about having it, which is great uh, because we're getting a little further in the um, people just hearing about it. I'm so happy to hear you've heard what it is because it's not very common for me to not have to say I have endometriosis and then get this blank stare from someone. So I'm very happy <laughs> that you've heard of it. Um, so what it is by definition, it's when um, the cells that line the uterus, there are cells that are very similar to them. So you, usually for women, um, you have cells that line your uterus called your endometrial tissue. And with your period, you shed those cells and that gets discharged with your period. But for women with endometriosis, we have cells that are a little bit different than those endometrial cells and they act differently, but they look similar to them. And they do the same thing that these endometrial cells do. They inflame with your period, but they don't leave your body with your period. They end up staying inside of you. And what that does is cause basically inflammation and bleeding and scar tissue and just a chronic state of inflammation wherever these lesions end up being. 
So they can be anywhere, honestly. Um, there's a misconception that it only is in like your pelvis. So like your ovaries, things like that. But a lot of women actually have it on their bowels, on their bladder. Mm. Uh, I had it on my diaphragm, which is why I was having such a hard time breathing every month with my period. And um, shockingly, most women show signs of GI symptoms before they show any pelvic symptoms with endometriosis. Wow. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. That is that is really interesting. The the fact that the it can manifest essentially in more areas than just your pelvic floor. That's it's really wild. I think a lot of people really assume that every quote hormonal issue or whatever it is is like just in your pelvic floor. So it's really interesting. Absolutely. Actually part of I think what keeps women from getting like the care that they can and should get is that there's this misconception that periods just should be painful. And um I think trying to explain that there is an acceptable level of pain versus, you know, um an unacceptable level of pain, like your period pain shouldn't keep you from living your your life. Mm. And that's a distinction that we really need to make that it shouldn't be crippling. That's not normal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. So what are, let's just say somebody's out there and they're, they suspect, oh, maybe I have this. What do you think the first steps are as far as that? Like getting the diagnosis is the end goal, obviously, but where should some, should somebody start? Yeah. Um, so honestly, I think the first place to start would probably be your OBGYN, but that's a little tricky because a lot of them don't know as much about endometriosis as we would like them to. Um, but that's kind of like your starting point in having a dialogue with someone about the conversation. But I think the more important thing is doing a little research about the disease so that you know if you're seeing the right person or not, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I kind of went backwards where I just kind of trusted and saw any doctor that I could see and then did research and realized I was seeing the wrong people. Mm-hmm. So I think starting with research, um, if you are hearing these symptoms that I'm explaining, you think you might have it. Shockingly, uh, social media is a really great place to start. And I know that might sound silly uh, when we're talking about a, a disease, but patients have become like so knowledgeable about their experiences. And honestly, I've done a lot of the legwork for you. I found like the most amazing and really well-versed endometriosis community, both on Instagram and on Facebook. Honestly, just search the hashtag endometriosis. And I think there's almost like 3 million posts associated Mm. with it with really good information um, and just people to talk to. Yeah. I think starting point. Yeah. And you have a great Instagram too. I mean, you're not, I can tell you're like not saying your Instagram, (laughs) maybe, maybe, you know, you got to get your ego in check, but I will put it down there and I'll say it. So you should check it out because you have like IGTV talks, you have infographs like you have everything so check her out for sure and um maybe you could they could do that little feature where you like do a little the little downward arrow and you can see like similar people to you and they could follow some of those people too yeah that's great thank you so much for sharing your story and all about endometriosis and i know because we're friends i know that you struggle with more than endometriosis so Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, So kind of a trademark of of a life with endometriosis is having multiple surgeries uh, before you have what we consider like 
the gold standard one. I was lucky in that my surgery with my specialist ended up being my second surgery and hopefully my last. But so a lot of women end up having five, six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. a surgery a year. Basically, they told me when I officially got diagnosed to expect to have a surgery every single year of my life. Um, yeah, which is insane. <laughs> um, but so with that comes scar tissue. Every single time you have another surgery, there's more scar tissue that develops from where they have to go in and where they have to remove lesions, et cetera. Uh, so for me, that scar tissue all in my abdominal cavity where I had endo created scar tissue that has called dig caused digestive issues for me. Um, I specifically, specifically have something called SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which for a long time, people just kind of lumped it in the IBS group, um, because we didn't have a name for it. But over the last few years, they've learned that it's something a little bit different than just IBS. So basically what happens is your small intestine, which shouldn't have very much bacteria at all in it, ends up being overpopulated by bacteria. And there's a lot of things that can cause this. There's certain chronic illnesses that can cause it. Um, but for me specifically, scar tissue from surgery is why this has happened to me. And so with that, um, this bacteria ends up harboring in your small intestine where your food isn't digested yet. And this bacteria basically feeds off of your undigested food. It's so gross to think about. I've, I've had it twice. Oh, have you? Mm -hmm. I've talked about it on my channel, so I'm really aware. I've been on, I've actually been on four rounds of antibiotics. Yeah, I've been treating my SIBO since 2016. So it's so chronic I, for you. I mean, it's going to be for the rest of your life, probably. So unless I Ugh. get rid of that, which it's. Really, it's really ironic that the treatment for scar tissue is surgery to remove scar tissue. No, wait. Yeah. So, because of the SIBO, for me, um, I have a lot of trigger foods that cause flare ups, and my flare ups look like um, bloating that I, I actually look pregnant. It's so bad. With that comes, you know, having to be really conscious of my diet and not being able to indulge as much as other people may be able to, and especially things that are my favorite food. So no dairy for me, looking over the menu and dissecting everything about every sauce and every dressing, um, because it's just not worth feeling bad over later. And that is one area that I think that I have a really, I have a really tough time navigating as far as like being public about it and not being self-conscious about mm -hmm. it. Like I used to get ragged on a lot at work about my diet. At work um, as a nurse. Yeah, yeah, I know it's shocking because I, I, I think in general, like eating healthy is normal now, but I've always experienced that it was always a thing when the like small skinny person is always really healthy with their diet. And I think that I got a lot of I would say a lot of slack because people would be indulging in things that are like on my no list. So like, you know, cookies and, and treats and things like that and things that I just can't have. And it has nothing to do with, you know, vanity. It's mm -hmm. my stomach will revolt and I don't feel terrible. And I'm not going to just like eat this thing to please you. And I almost felt almost like peer pressure a lot to like, oh, just have one. And I'm like, it's not that simple. It doesn't work that way for me. And like you said, being a nurse, you would think, um, you know, people would be a little more understanding, but I feel like diet is just one of those really sensitive things that even if you have a knowledge of, you know, a medical reason somebody might not want to have a certain thing. We're all still human. And I think we have, we have judgments about those kinds of things. So true. Yeah. I, I just have been doing the low FODMAP. I did it for about three months. 
It's a lot. And I think, you know, I'm really lucky to have a supportive husband as you are. Um, and that's so great. But yeah, as soon as you, as soon as I was outside in the outside world, that's when the anxiety was like hitting. And I'm really fortunate that I no longer have to do that because I don't think it's SIBO at this point. I think it's something else. I'm figuring that out right now. Um, but yeah, that it is so it is so tricky when you're just like I just need you to not judge me right now. And you can't say that. I mean, you could, but probably won't <laughs> if you're just meeting somebody for the first time. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, SIBO and endometriosis, never even thought that they were connected, but they are. Yeah. Um, what else do we have? So then also from the endometriosis, um, I actually, and I'm going to try to make this as not confusing as possible. And I think that I can do it. So there's a sister disease to endometriosis called adenomyosis. So endometriosis is these abnormal cells outside of your uterus. That's by definition what it is. But with adenomyosis, these abnormal cells are actually in your uterus, like in the muscle of your uterus. So I had both of these diseases and it's very common to see both. And for adenomyosis, the only cure essentially is a hysterectomy. So I had my major surgery for endometriosis in 2016, got so much better, felt so much better. But at that surgery, they suspected that I might have adenomyosis as mm. well based on the symptoms I was telling them I was having. Like I would have really bad pain with sex, especially with like deep penetration. It was very painful for me. Um, and so ultimately I learned that like anytime my uterus was being hit during sex, that's, I was feeling that. And so we went into that surgery knowing that that might be an issue for me and that ultimately I would, I might have to consider having a hysterectomy if, if it got to be unbearable. And, um, I would say about a year after my endo surgery, I started having the symptoms. Maybe they were more noticeable now that the endo was gone. Maybe I think before they were both competing for my attention <laughs> and I didn't know what was what. Um, but once the endo was removed, it became very clear that the adenomyosis is also a major issue for me. So for that, it was still the pain with sex. I was having lower back pain. And I'm talking like at this point, I'm 30 and I like could barely get through a day of work without like needing, you know, those um, portable heat packs mm. for my back. I had like this whole process of how I would like strap up my heat pack and then I'd put an ice pack over that and I'd make sure I'd wear clothes that it was concealable in. And over time I was like, okay, this is getting worse. And this is kind of just like silly now. Um, with adenomyosis, there's also an inflammatory factor that comes with that. So I was just tired all the time, brain foggy. And so um, I had to make the decision of, do I want to attempt to have children before I have this big surgery or just go ahead and do it. Cause my quality of life was suffering like dramatically. Um, and at that time I was, was I engaged yet? I don't even know. No, I wasn't even engaged yet. I was dating my now husband for a while. And so I had to kind of make this fertility decision, like for the both of us, you know, we weren't in a place where we knew for certain we wanted kids. So to say like, just stick it out until we're ready. I, I have no idea how long that would be. Is that like another five years that I have to live with like this? Is it just a year? At the end of the day, I felt like my body was being hijacked and my mind was being hijacked and I was holding out for something that I didn't even know if I actually wanted. And it just, for me, it wasn't making sense anymore. You know, that the, 
best years or what should have been the best years of my life, my early thirties were just being, you know, spent in pain and in bed all the time. So I decided to go ahead and have a hysterectomy, um, in 2017. And I still suffer from what's called pelvic floor dysfunction. So basically my pelvic floor muscles from, you know, having to basically support this uterus that was diseased for my entire life. Um, the muscles surrounding, so muscles in my glutes, areas like that are just kind of wacky. <laughs> That's the best way I put it. Um, they were tense for so long. Basically, it's almost like retraining them to learn how to relax how to engage when they're supposed to. And I had to go through something called pelvic floor physical therapy um, to help me do that. And it was basically reestablishing this mind and body connection between how my pelvis feels pain, how these muscles relax, how they react to um, stimulus that they should contract to. It's like a, basically a whole reset of like learning how to breathe to relax your pelvic floor. Um, so I still deal with that to a level nowhere near as bad as it was right after surgery or even before surgery. I'm at the point now where I, I basically can do some level of therapy maybe twice a month and that keeps everything in place. So you are, I'm like, you're so in touch with your body for the most part. It seems like you have awareness that most people will never have in their whole life probably. And as <clears throat> somebody who went through a very debilitating mental illness that ended up being physical, like an eating disorder, I also feel like it's very important for me to have awareness of my body. And I do have awareness of my body that's so much more than what I used to have when I was really struggling. So how has how how do you see your body now? Like, it, I want to know your perspective on all of this. Like, how has it shifted just the way that you view yourself, your health, your body, mentally and physically? Yeah. Um, I, I honestly, I think I took it for granted before just how like well it worked <laughs> and how things that are just automatic just did their thing without any thought. And I, I took that for granted. I think most people do. Um, when you're feeling well and nothing's wrong with you. But I think now I actually appreciate the level of awareness that I have of my body because I know when something's not right, right away. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so in tune with what's my normal. And I don't think a lot of people know what their normal is, you know? So for me, it may not be this perfect picture of health and normal, but it's what's normal for me. And I know when I'm outside of that. And so it's easy for me to, whether it's needing to adjust my diet or needing a little bit more rest or needing a little bit more attention to like what I stretch and how I stretch. I just am so much more aware of taking care of things before they get to a level of like being a huge fire. And I, I value that because I never was that way before. I kind of just like put the fires out when they were full blown instead of like preventing getting to a fire at all. And it's cool because I kind of, I see how in just dealing with other people in my life, whether it's my family or my husband, I realize that a lot of people operate that way. And so like, now I'm the one that's like, no, like that's not normal. That's been going on for too long. Like you need to address this or like, oh, that's, that'll be fine. Just watch it. And so I feel like I'm just a better like advocate for people in my life now too, as far as like encouraging them when they need to check in a little bit more with themselves and with their body. Mm. I used to be. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. 
So we, you talk a lot. I've, I've heard you talk about this, um, and I want to talk to you about it too. Advocating for yourself um, in general, just all yep. the time, but especially in the medical world um, and just in your personal life. So I'd love to know what that means for you and how you were able to develop advocacy for yourself and in your personal life and in within your medical world, all of your doctors and professionals that you were seeing? Yeah. Um, I love that question because <laughs> I, being surrounded by the medical community for so long and working at places that were like world renowned, I always just had this lens that like, the doctors know everything and they will figure everything out for you. And we know more than you do and just listen to what we have to say, you know? And I remember being, I wouldn't say judgy, but you know, sometimes you get those, we call them web, web MD patients that come in with like their facts and their lists of things that they Google on the internet. That's me. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, not, 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 not like too much, but I definitely am like knowledgeable. <laughs> yeah. Which we should be, but for so long within the medical community. And I think that's still a thing. And, and I, I was part of this culture where we're like, Oh, these people think they know more than we do. And yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of them do. Like, mm. I realize now that I spend way more time looking up my conditions that affect me than any doctor that I'm going to see has because it affects me personally. So to assume that just because I'm not a doctor means that I know less about this thing is it is not, it's just not true. And it's completely changed the way that I take care of patients um, mm. for the better in just really listening to what they have to say and realizing like, oh, like you are just as part just as much a part of figuring this out and navigating this as I am and giving you the care. And we, we don't really operate that way in medicine. It's like, we'll take care of you. And like, we've got this and, and that's it. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be a collaboration. And my getting sick helped me realize that for myself, that there are some things that I have to speak up about. And if, if something doesn't feel right, like I said, at the end of the day, nobody cares about my body, my life, my health more than I do. Whether you swore for your profession that you were going to care for people well, you're not going to care about your my life as much as I care about my life. No. So I treated every interaction with every practitioner in that in that view that like I trust you as my doctor, but I don't trust that what your word is the be all end all because I'm the one that has to live in this body every day. And so it just forced me to just be more proactive in my care and not so passive. So asking questions when things didn't sound right doing my research um, and being like prepared for appointments, having mm -hmm. questions ready and not just like sitting there and, and taking in the information, but challenging things that just didn't sound right to me or didn't make sense or asking for clarity. Um, and I know for certain that that played such a huge part in why it didn't take me as long as other people do to get diagnosed uh, because I, I pushed and I, and I didn't just, see one doctor who said, this is fine. I went and saw another one if I didn't like that answer. And if I didn't like the next answer, I went and saw another one. And um, I think that that's what we have to do. Uh, we have to fight for ourselves because nobody mm -hmm. else is going to. And that kind of spilled into my personal life in that um, I won't say I was a passive friend, but I think that I used to let bad behavior go on for a lot longer than um, I probably should have in the way um, I let people treat me. And I, I'm not saying I had people just really like be bad friends to me or like bad people to me. I think it's more of like, I think I gave 
way more grace than was warranted in a lot of situations than I did before um, I before I got sick versus after I got sick. And I think specifically like living with chronic illness and just kind of having just a different life than all of my friends and, and having to cancel plans last minute and not knowing what a day is going to be like and not being able to like guarantee that I'm going to be able to be with somewhere that I say I'm going to be or do something I say I'm going to do. Not really having the mental space to pick up the phone to talk to you, returning texts a week or two late, or two weeks later. I felt so guilty about that. And I had people that made me feel guilty about that. And then the more I got into life with these illnesses and realizing like these things aren't going anywhere, I realized that like I need to take inventory of the people that I have around me. Like, are do they get it? And are they going to be okay with it? And if they're not, um, then I need to look at what these relationships, what place they hold in, in my life moving forward. And I did have to end some, some friendships, people mm-hmm. that just didn't understand. And I don't think that if I went through what I went through medically, I would have ever had the courage to, to do that. Wow. That's really a powerful thing. Um, I, I think everyone kind of goes through an experience in their adult life where they're like, I need to reevaluate some of these friends. <laughs> and so you really had that very, I guess, sort of thrown on you because of your chronic illness. Like that was like, it's time. You got to reevaluate them right now because you don't have time to. And, and nobody deserves to feel guilty about something that is holding them, like holding them back their chronic illness. It just, that's good on you for doing that. Right. And I I think we, um, we kind of have these like friendship cliches that we say to people like, I'm here if you need anything and I'm always here for you. And like, but especially when we're younger, how often do we really get to see that lived out where we actually have to see someone like live up to that call of friendship that we, we say that we're going to live up to. It's not very often. Like many of us, I think many people in general go their entire life without anything like traumatic or serious happening to them. And especially when you're in your early twenties and early thirties, when we're like so youthful. So I found that like, it's one thing to say like, yes, I'm going to be a good friend to you. And it's a whole other thing to show up and actually do it when you're actually challenged to do it. It's so easy to be my friend when I'm healthy and I'm perfectly fine and we're having fun and we're doing all these great things. But when, when I can't do that anymore, it was like really why really, really eye opening to see like, oh, that's what you meant when you said you'd be there for me. That's that's a little different than how I pictured it uh when you said it. But yeah. it, it was really interesting. Yeah, it's like I'll be there for you when you're ready to have fun and like live your life normally. It's like that's yeah. not that's not real. And wow, yeah, that's super powerful. I've heard a lot about advocating for yourself within the medical world, but I really haven't heard a lot about the personal world. So it's really interesting perspective. And I appreciate that you shared that. That's a good one. Did you feel like this is a question about the medical, the medical world, the doctors, did you feel like they were challenged by you, like asking them questions back? Did they like, I'm sure they all responded differently, but did some of them, were they like, whoa, this, I can't, I can't answer that. Or I don't know. what, What was your experience in that way? Yeah, it's, it's different. It was different depending on the situation. And so it's, I love that you asked that. So fast forward to like, what, four years after all the endo stuff, I ended up finding out I had this stuff wrong with my heart that I was. Yes, with. please share this. I was going to ask you, but I'm like, <laughs> a good segue because I was so much more prepared for this 
um, to take this on because of what I went through with endo. And again, some rare, weird thing that I was born with that not too many people have and not too many people, they don't really know exactly what you're supposed to do with it. And long story short, it became another situation of me knowing more about what was going on with me than the doctors that I was seeing were. Um, And my experience with endo prepared me to ask questions, to know when I needed to walk away. And it took me a lot less time to do that. Like, so from, um, symptom to treatment, it was about a year for the heart stuff versus four years for endo, because I just didn't waste time if I didn't need to. And so I specifically look for specialists to see instead of starting with somebody general. So I knew what to do the second time around, but ego definitely pays a part in, um, the doctor patient interaction. If I found that wasn't often that I had people challenge me. And I think being a nurse helped, of course, because I have some level of foundation of where my thought process is coming from, not just researching on the internet, but also being taught how to research, you know? Um, It wasn't often that I met people that just completely disregarded me. But when I did, it was always really surprising. Um, I had one hospital stay where it was just night and day difference between the interaction that I got, depending on the doctor that I was with. I had one that was just perfectly honest and said, you've spent more time thinking about this than I ever will. So I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Um, And then another that just seemed just so bothered by every suggestion that I had or every, you know, question that I had and um, just seemed to gaslight, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gaslight everything, all, all of my concerns. And and ended it with just basically telling me I was making a bigger deal out of the situation than I needed to. And then here we are, you know, six months later and I end up needing open heart surgery for this thing that he's telling me I'm making a bigger deal than I needed to. But if I had not learned years before that this person's opinion was not judge and jury of whether I should continue to pursue this, um, he was a specialist and a, and a good one by reputation. And if I didn't know enough to know that he's not the only specialist in this field. And just because he thinks this doesn't mean that it's, you know, Bible truth. Um, how, how much longer would it have taken me before I decided to see somebody else? And I'm almost, I'm, I'm a God person. So I, I definitely believe that the endo stuff prepared me for how to navigate the heart stuff, which was so much more serious of a thing to not have to waste time. Um, and to be able to get a resolution much more quickly. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I am also a God person, as you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, it's like God really prepared you for this heart stuff. So you you knew you had a heart condition. We talked about this already. That's why I, I know a little bit about it before you knew about the endo. Right. So in working me up for the endo stuff, since I was complaining with the endo uh, symptoms that I was having shortness of breath and trouble breathing, um, to do our due diligence, we were looking at everything that that could be from. So we looked at my heart extensively and we looked at my lungs extensively. And in doing that, we did find something um, wrong with my heart. And it was two different things that I was born with. So I've had them my entire life um, and why they chose to manifest themselves when I turned in my 30s, I don't know. I can't speak to that. I, I, I have a lot of theories. I think between just my body being run down from all the endo stuff was just opportunity for other things to rear their head. Um, and 
So we knew that I had them in 2016, but they weren't the main thing to focus on because I was in so much pain from the endo that that was my priority. That it was like, I can't do anything if I'm in pain this much. So like, thanks for letting me know about this heart stuff, but we'll look into this (laughs) some other time. So once I got my endo taken care of and I got the adenomyosis taken care of with the hysterectomy, I, nothing was left except for the heart stuff. And then we were able to, I was able to really see like, oh, this is, this is its own issue, which is so wild. Because after every surgery, I'm like, this is it. We're done. Like I figured it out. And last summer when these symptoms started, I was like, are you kidding me? Like mm-hmm. we're doing this again. And, but I, again, going back to like feeling like God's hand was in it and his timing that like, if I hadn't figured out all that other stuff and just been left with the heart stuff, it would have been so confusing still to figure out what's what, where's, where are these symptoms coming from? But I, I had enough time between surgeries that it was very clear, like, oh, this is, this is new. This isn't the same thing that you took care of a couple years ago. So it was very clear, like we're dealing with your heart and that's it. Um, and so I knew what I needed to do and I knew who I needed to see. And that was, that process was so much easier and it ended with me needing open heart surgery, which I had um, in November. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how has your mental health kind of been these days and just throughout this experience? It's been a long experience. I mean, it's been years and years, but if you could just, talk about that a little bit. I would I would love to hear about your mental health because you sound so level-headed and strong and I'm sure it wasn't always like that. I I mean I can't imagine it was. If it was then good for you, but I mean it sound it just that's just a lot. So, what's your mental health like? Yeah, so it changed depending on where I was in this journey. So, me before I was sick, I am I describe myself. I was very optimistic. I'm like that glass half full person. I will find the silver lining in anything. I'm generally in a good mood. Things don't really keep me down very long. Like that was my baseline that like this sucks, but like, we're just going to, we'll handle it mentality. And I was that way through the whole first endo experience. Um, the pain was bad and I felt, um, had periods of depression, but it was very obvious that it was situational. It was due to the fact that I was in pain all day, every day. Um, so I feel like I was able to deal with that first chunk so much better than the stuff later because um, this was my first time dealing with anything like this. I just had so much more of a like, going to get through this, going to hammer through this type of attitude. Um, the hysterectomy period was a whole different ballgame. Um, I experienced grief like I never knew existed before. And it was so confusing to me because I made the decision and I was okay with it. And I went into that decision, like feeling 100% confident that this was the right thing for me. And it was, I, I feel just so much better having done it. So I don't regret that, but I didn't realize how heavy it was going to be on me to grieve something that I didn't even know if I wanted or not, you know, mm-hmm. going into it, I was like, Oh, you're, you're not even set on kids. So like, this is, this isn't, this is a no brainer. Like you need to have your life back. But after it, and I know hormones played a role in it, of course, but I was just hit with this grief where like, I couldn't be around people with kids. I couldn't hear about pregnancies. I couldn't see pregnant people. I couldn't go to baby showers. I couldn't hear about baby showers. It was, it was bad. Um, so I ended up having to go to therapy for that. 
and I've worked through it. And, you know, I have my moments still where I'm still like, oh, I wonder what could have been in that area. Um, just to give a little disclaimer, I still have ovaries. So we have the ability to create embryos and use a surrogate if we want to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with that comes just a lot of hormones and more stress on my body. And I just need a break from stress on my body. Mm-hmm. But I still have those moments where I'm like, oh, I wish it could have just been as easy as just getting pregnant like a regular woman could. Oh, yeah. But for the most part, I think I've I've processed through that really well. Um, and then with the heart stuff, that was more of a just fear about how serious the situation was. Um, anxiety over like just knowing what the potential outcome could have been, which could have been death. Like that's this, this was a life or death situation. And so that was a whole new thing I had to wrap my mind around. Um, and now I'm finding in coming on the other side of all of these things, there's a bit of like, now I know the term for it is medical PTSD that I have where situations that used to trigger pain for me or, um, so for example, I have a hard time driving places by myself. Um, I have this fear that I'm going to get to where I need to get to and something's going to happen to me. And like, how do I get home? If I'm in pain, I can't take pain medicine because I have to drive. Like if something happens with my breathing or my heart, like what if I'm behind the wheel? So there's this anxiety that comes with just being in the car behind the wheel. Um, there's an anxiety that comes with being in certain places like that. I remember certain situations where I felt bad in that I just can't be at. So, which has caused me to have to like be really mindful about the places that I work uh, because there's just so much trauma associated with appointments and things Mm. like that. Um, How else does it play? My schedule triggers major anxiety. If I see a week where I have a lot to do, I, my mind goes to, well, what if you don't feel well this day and you have to reschedule this and you have to cancel this. And like, so now I just don't fill up my week. I'm capable. I'm more than capable. I physically feel well enough to, I mentally feel well, well enough to, but seeing that much on my plate before the week starts, I, I almost still feel like I need to save some like rest days just in case. And I haven't gotten over that yet. And, um, that's kind of where I am right now. Just kind of trying to work through those things that I know are triggers for me. It's meeting new people that uh, is, is kind of a trigger. And like, do I explain and how much do I go into and, you know, trying to feel that out. Um, not wanting to overcommit myself to plans with people that don't know my history yet. It's easy with people that know, and I can just be like, not feeling so great today. And it's, it's nothing, but I get nervous with the new people that they're going to think I'm flaky. And so that's kind of the mental health journey I'm on right now. Mm, I've never heard of medical PTSD, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I I think that a lot more people struggle with it than know that they do. I, I threw up an IGTV about it because I had a day where I'd like driven myself somewhere and was feeling really excited about it. <laughs> um, just kind of shared, you know, because I cried at the end because it was a big deal. Like I hadn't driven myself in over a year. I know that, that sounds insane, but you know, my husband drives everywhere for that reason. And, um, I shared just about what it looked like for me and just got just hundreds of responses of people like, Oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is me. And like, this is what I deal with. And I didn't realize this was a thing. And so I think that we're not addressing that enough within the chronic illness community that like these lived experiences that we have where like our body kind of turns itself on us is very traumatic. Mm -hmm. It's a very thing you know are there like like, medical professionals who can help with that you know are there therapists who are trained in medical ptsd 
Yeah. So I was seeing a therapist who specifically focused on trauma in general. So it kind of all falls under the same umbrella on how you would Mm -hmm. unpack all that. And there's specific techniques that you can use to help people process trauma. So I would look for someone who specifically deals with with trauma related issues. Mm -hmm. Great. That's good. So normalizing chronic illness, breaking the stigma what what stigmas do you feel like are kind of floating around out there that you would just like to throw away? And how can we do that on social media and just in our daily life? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be completely honest about ones that I used to assume before I was a sick person. And, and I think this comes from just like being able-bodied and able-minded that you just assume that everybody's life <laughs> looks like yours. Um, but one misconception is that there's a way to look when you're mm-hmm. sick. So you have this like this quote in the chronic illness community, it's, but you don't look sick because so many of us have heard that so many times. It's like, what does that even mean? What does sick look like? I have to be like incapacitated for you to believe that I'm experiencing what I'm telling you I experience. And if you only knew what it took for me to look as good as I look in front of you right now, like that's an effort that I am making for you to not know how much I'm dealing with it internally. Um, and so that misconception, I think is it's harmful to just assume that every single person that you see and meet is just okay, because there's so many in- invisible illnesses. I mean, all these autoimmune diseases that people are having now and, and other chronic illnesses, I think now it's more likely than not that you are in somebody's presence that has something that you, that you can't see on the surface. Yeah. I mean, even, eating disorders is the that's like one of the biggest misconceptions with body image with diet which again not judging people by what they're eating is super important we talked about that earlier but yeah that's that's a huge misconception so of course in in that the chronic illness world like yeah that's a shame yeah and and with that i think comes some judgment because so like i know that i used to push through symptoms to not disappoint people, to not flake. And so I, I would say yes to things that I had no business saying yes to. And I would be places just in terrible pain or just feeling horrible and just like working through it. So I could check it off the list and be like, all right, I saw that person. Now I can like have a month where I don't feel like a bad friend or whatever. And so this idea that like one day I could be perfectly well and feel completely fine. And next day, you know, I don't. And so the energy it took me to be at that thing I told you I could be at likely means the next day I'm in bed all day. And like, I know that going into it, but I think that there's some judgment that comes with that from people that don't really realize what chronic means that it's like, this is going to be an up and down and every, not every day is going to be the same. And like, this is forever. This is, you know, it's not like, but you were better yesterday. It's like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't better yesterday. I was still sick. I just had a better day. I just looked better. I was just able to pull it together better. Um, it, it's definitely a theme where you kind of have to judge like, well, I told this person I couldn't do this yesterday. And then they're going to see me like doing something fun the next day. And then they're going to think I was lying because I couldn't do that thing yesterday. And it's like, should I post about this great day that I'm having? Or am I going to get slack or judgment for it? And at the end of the day, I shouldn't have to think about any of that. I should be able to indulge in my good days when I have them and my good times when I have them without worrying about if someone's going to be questioning whether I'm actually still sick or not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so true. And I I wish I could tell all those people in your life who are making you feel ashamed to back off. Uh, but yeah. it's like you said, reevaluating the people in your life is important too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm lucky in that everyone around me now gets it. And so mm -hmm. I don't fear any of that anymore. That's definitely a thing when I had people around me that are, were a little bit more judgy that I used to have to think more about. But now I, I don't even think twice. Everyone in my life knows where I'm at and what's going on. But I know for so many people, that's that's a challenge of people questioning and doubting how mm -hmm. sick they are. Um, because, you know, some days they look great and some days they are great and, and they should be able to enjoy those great days without anybody questioning them, you know? Mm -hmm. And do you think that as more women get diagnosed or people get diagnosed in general with chronic illness, obviously more people will be aware that they have an answer and then they can advocate for themselves in a very concrete way on social media or just in their life? Um which is exciting to think about, but it seems like we have like a long way to go in that department. Yeah. You know what I noticed? And I started my illness Instagram be as a Finsta because I didn't feel comfortable sharing about this stuff. So you didn't like say, disclose who you were when you first started off? Yeah. No, I didn't. And I didn't, no one that I knew personally knew that I had it. It was like, this just a safe space for me. Like I was processing this new life that I had and just like, didn't really feel like I had many people that I could talk to that understood it. And that's kind of how it was created. Almost like just like a diary for me to, to capture. And then it turned into something so much different as I went through these different phases of it. But I know part of me sometimes feels like I live a double life. Um, because I know that in my regular world, people just don't want to hear about the, the not so happy stuff all the time. You know, um, we have almost like a level of how real we can be <laughs> in these platforms where we're claiming to be real. And it's like, but this is a huge part of my life and it just feels weird to not talk about it. And thank God I have this other place that I can do it, but it just feels like not disingenuous, but I know that I can't be as transparent with my, I call it my personal Instagram account as I can with my illness Instagram account. And I don't know. What does that say about me? What does it say about society? I, I, I think especially being in LA, you know this, that there's like, there's a, there's a quota for how much like real, not so happy, sunny stuff people are willing to talk to, <laughs> talk about without, you know, thinking you're a drag. And so having to decipher like, you know, what lane do I need to stay in depending on where you are and who you're with. But I think that I feel like, like you were saying, I think is people just start accepting where they are more and like owning the th parts of their life that isn't perfect or pretty and being like comfortable to be able to share that. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that we're seeing more of that. Like I, I love what you're doing with your account for that reason. And, and I'm, I love that we're seeing more things like this. And I was thinking about this and this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but with like this COVID stuff and they're talking about all these people that are going to have these chronic issues. And this is going to be like this whole new wave of people that have this stuff that they never had to deal with before. And I'm like, I'm so happy that we're already having these conversations and that there's already going to be places and things and resources in place for these people to feel like seen and understood. Mm. It's, you know, going to be brand new for all of them. And I just, I just love that we're kind of, we're taking off the, 
the facade of just like perfection being what needs to be manifested in every platform that we like are on. Yeah, for sure. I know. Yeah, actually, I don't know if you knew this, but Rio and I both had COVID in July. Yes, you told me. And like, you guys completely better? Are you having any lingering things? Well, I feel totally fine. I tested negative twice, um, but I do still have like, I think I probably have about 50% of my smell and taste back. And when I really think about that, it's really scary because, yeah, I'm like, is this ever going to get better? I don't know. And for some people it did. For some people it never came back. So it's really interesting. I've never even thought I would ever have to deal with anything like it. So it's it seems so small compared to what you're talking about, honestly. But it is really interesting just to kind of think, you know, a year ago, I would have never, none of us would have ever thought this would be happening. Yeah. I mean, some people probably did, but, you know, the <laughs> general population didn't. And now I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just going to have diminished smell and taste for this period of time. So it's, it's really wild. And, and yeah, I'm, it's a little bit freaky thinking about the long-term effects. Like my sister-in-law was saying, you know, I'm sure a year from now, people are going to have to have extensive physicals just to see like what's happening to people's bodies. And so I'm really fortunate though, that we are fine you know, we feel okay. So good. we're good. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that. I did see though, um, and I'm really encouraged about this, that there have been like forums popping up on social media for people who are still having like COVID symptoms. And this goes back to what I was saying, like you creating spaces like yours and me like mine, that like people feel comfortable having spaces like that so that they can like talk to real people about real things. And I just think it's awesome that we're just being more authentic. Yes. So good. It's so good. And of course, when we are authentic, people can relate to us, people that we never thought could. And it's it's a beautiful thing when people are just break down those walls. And I love that social media, I mean, not everyone on social media is taking that realness turn, but it does seem like more and more people are. And it's so beautiful to see. It's really encouraging. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, I guess my takeaway points is Always my biggest one is that crippling period pain is not normal. So if you're experiencing that, please reach out to um, one of the number of organizations. I get so many personal DMs with people just like, this is going on. What do you think? And I'm happy to answer them and just kind of help guide you in the right direction. And that's kind of what we do at the Endoco as well. It's like grassroots, just like saving one lady at a time, you know, Hmm. that's number one. Um, Number two, I think just for anybody else that lives with anything chronic, whether it's mental illness or physical chronic illness and just... I think finding ways to not let these things define who you are as a person that like we live with them, but they don't have to be all of who we are. And that's hard to do sometimes when it consumes so much of you. Uh, But that's one little piece of advice that I would give. And I think just, just being honest and open with people about where you are and what you're going through and um, being open to receiving people's questions and empathy and grace when they give it to you and, and knowing um, when it might be time to walk away from a toxic situation from someone that's not seeing you for where you are. Those are things that mm. I would. Claps, claps. <laughs> You're such a beautiful person and you have such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really am so excited for everyone to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This yes. was fun. Yes, this was so fun. Okay, that's it for this episode of Take the Cake. Oh, I love her. She is phenomenal. 
um, just just a light in this world, and I really appreciate her so much. Uh, thank you again for being on the show, uh, and thank you for listening, everyone out there. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review or a rating if you feel like it. Really appreciate it. It helps me a lot. And I will see you guys on the next episode of Take the Cake. Bye. <laughs>